good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name's Tony, if we haven't met. I, uh, I don't know about you, but I was sort of a weepy mess over in the aisles in this church. <laughs> At least there was plenty of room. Uh, but just kind of, I don't know. I don't know if you felt that song or just experienced God's presence, but I don't know for me. This is a season, you just kind of feel beat up. And it's just nice to be reminded that God is for us, that God is with us. Even when there's smoke outside and I can't leave my room and I'm mad and I'm frustrated and irritable, God is with me and he's with you. Now, if you've been with us, we're journeying through 1 Corinthians. It's been this awesome journey. Uh, We're all the way into chapter 13. We're sort of leaning into what does it look like to be a messy church in service of a merciful God? Now today we're going to look at one of maybe the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. This is how it begins, right? This is what, part of it. You, I, let, tell me, try and finish this sentence. Love is patient. Love is kind. Yeah, right? You've likely heard it at weddings. Maybe you've seen a greeting card or some sort of card with it inscribed on it. But the truth is, Paul wasn't writing these words about marriage. It wasn't something he penned independently for a card that you could hand to a friend. He wrote it to the church at Corinth. Now, in our world, we actually have only one word for love. We use it for all kinds of purposes, right? Like, I love these dark chocolate chip cookies with oatmeal and a little salt sprinkled on them. I love them. Like when my wife Jeannie makes them or I make them, I'm bound. If, if there's 12, I will probably have at least eight of them so that everyone else in my family can have one. Uh, I love these cookies. I love it when there is no or very little smoke outside so I can go outside, right? And I really don't love it when there is tons of smoke. Right? We love our families. And sometimes we talk about love as if it is some an emotional experience that we fall in of and out of. But we use the same word. In Greek, actually, there's multiple words for love. But what's really interesting is that when Paul had the choice of picking a Greek word for love, he didn't choose the two most popular words in his day. Eros, which is sort of like passionate love. And phileo which is used to describe sort of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, phileo. He didn't pick the two most popular words for love. Instead, he chose a word, uh, the word for love called agape. It's interesting, though, because if you go through the Old Testament in Greek, it's called the Septuagint, a very popular version of the Bible in Paul's day. This noun, agape, only appears one time in the entire Septuagint in the Song of Psalms. And if you go to Greek classical literature, it's super rare there as well. So what Paul and his friends did is they picked a word that had a very minor or tiny and very unclear footprint in the Greek language, and they filled it with new meaning. They filled it with new meaning so that the church had a new word or a word for love that would shape who they would become. And what does Paul do, right? He teases that out in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, context-wise, in 1 Corinthians 12, right, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts and how they function within the body. 
right? He knows the Corinthians are super focused on knowledge and wisdom and gifts like speaking in tongues where they can sort of speak in these languages of God. We'll talk about it more next week. But the point is, they like these gifts that made them the center of attention. But they're losing track of the model of Jesus whose life is shaped by self-giving love. Right? Jesus says in John 14, he says that he exists so that all of his actions will lead to the glorification of the Father. Right? Jesus is offering himself in love right? so that the Father might be glorified, not so the spotlight's on him. Right? They're losing track of their purpose as a church to embody and image God in everyday life. John, who's one of Jesus' closest disciples, writes in 1 John, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8. And what John is trying to say is that knowing God is intimately connected to loving one's neighbor. And yet, the Corinthian claim to value knowledge and neglect love seems to run totally contrary to what John is talking about. Right, so Paul writes chapter 13 to help the church in Corinth get back on track. It kind of functions like a bridge between how the body is supposed to operate in chapter 12 and then the chaos of their worship service in chapter 14. Right, it's meant to clarify the way in which the manner of life in which right, the gifts find their proper place. Now, there's three major chunks to chapter 13. The first, verses 1 through 3, focuses on kind of like the absolute necessity of love. Oh, man, love is absolutely necessary. 4 through 7 talks about the character of love. So Paul's bringing this word, agape, right, sort of trying to add nuance to it. And he's saying, oh, this is what it looks like, 4 through 7. And 8 through 13 focuses on the permanence of love, how it endures Right? Not just in the season of the church, but even when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, this gift of love, right, the character of love endures forever. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 first. This is the necessity of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, it's not coincidental that Paul talks about tongues first. Right? He'll talk about it at length in chapter 14. But the Corinthians think right, that they're super spiritual because they can speak in tongues and Paul's like, hey guys, wait a minute. Plus, pause for a second. Because right? what the Corinthians are doing is they're coming up on stage, they're speaking in a language that no one can understand and then they think, aren't I awesome? Look at how gifted I am. But there's no love in their action. They're not trying to build up the body. Their words are meaningless to everyone. They're not saying something that's going to edify or convict or build people up. They're just saying this thing. And Paul says to them, guys, your, your words are like a hollow or a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. They're just a hollow sound. 
Now, Paul likely is referencing the brass market in the Corinthian marketplace. So there was a, a robust market in brass. So in order to produce a pot or a cup, what you'd have to do is pound it. And as the Corinthians, they went shopping, they would go by this area of the market and there would be this loud racket. And Paul is saying to them, your words when you stand up there are as meaningless as the roar of banging brass in the market if your life is not shaped by Jesus' self-giving love. He's saying to them, who cares about the spiritual gifts you have if you don't love your neighbor? Care for the struggling. Forgive the broken. Be kind to the wayward. But it's also not coincidental that the second thing Paul highlights is wisdom and knowledge and faith. Right? Again, the Corinthians are prone to elevate wisdom and knowledge above everything. And Paul's saying to them simply, like, I don't care what books you've read, what degrees you have behind your name, how much of the Bible you have memorized and can quote and cite, or what amazing, miraculous works you have done. Right? If your life is not shaped by a Jesus-like love, then all that learning, all those miracles, they don't amount to anything in the kingdom of God. In fact, it is meaningless in the sight of God. Paul says, it is nothing. But the truth is, Paul's just getting warmed up. Because then he says, hey, and guess what? Your personal gifts, they don't amount to much, but neither does your personal sacrifice. Right? If we, as a church, pulled all of our resources together, sold all of our homes, and gave it to the poor, but we do it because we want others to think we're awesome, right? Virtue signaling. Or we do it because we think some heroic one-time effort is going to satisfy some quota, like our goodness quota, and then we've, we've done our good deed. Paul says to us, right, you gained nothing. I was once in a church with a couple, and they had been missionaries uh, in their earlier life, you know, spent maybe 10 years uh, loving the poor. And when I met them, it was like 20 or 30 years later, and I remember talking to them, and they literally thought this way. They're like, well, you know, I was asking them to get involved, to serve, like to love folks that were struggling, and they said, you know, I already put in my time. I did my time. I spent my 10 years. Now, I'm going to do what I want. And I think this is the very attitude that Paul is trying to attack here. Right? We can't depend on past faithfulness as if somehow what we did in the past means like, <laughs> brush your shoulders off, you are good. You passed the test. Paul is more interested in whether we are becoming people who love our neighbor than whether we loved our neighbor well at some past date. It's a question of character, not sacrifice. A question of love. The truth is, when I look back on my 20s, I feel like I did that to a T. I thought, man, I'm going to do this big splash action. And I thought, man, I did this big splash. I must really be faithful or righteous or whatever. Right? I joined the Peace Corps. I worked with teenage meth addicts. I, I lived with homeless youth for a season. When I was reading this text, I just felt like God was helping me re 
understand that story. Like he said to me, Tony, you know, when you went to Kenya and joined the Peace Corps, I was way more interested in whether you loved the people you met in Kenya than the fact you went to Kenya. And when I was in the group homes, God was saying, I was way more interested in whether you loved the people you were with in the group home, not whether you decided to work there. And Tony, I was, I was way more interested in whether you loved those homeless youth, not whether you decided to live with them. Tony, I care way more about whether you love people than the sacrifices you make in order to sort of quote-unquote do so. And today, as I was reading these verses, I, I personally feel really challenged by Paul's focus on loving people and on all the other aspects of the spiritual life. Right? Paul values spiritual gifts. He cares about knowledge and learning. Yeah, and yet he is quite clear, right, if we were to put this into our context, that attending Sunday service, reading the Bible, taking time for prayer, these things become hollow if they do not form us into a people who actually love our neighbor. And this actually makes tons of sense. These things, Sunday service, Reading the Bible, prayer, they're all attempts to draw nearer to the presence of God. And then when we're in the presence of God, who is love, he shapes and transforms us into his image so that we love our neighbor. So something is tragically wrong if we're doing these things and not becoming more loving people. Not instantly, but over time. Because when you're in the presence of God, he transforms you. He rubs off on you. Right? So that your character in his presence is changed and shaped and healed. So that you are transformed into his image. And what does his image look like? Ah, it loves people. That's what God does. 1 Corinthians 1-3. through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I am a gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is talking about the absolute necessity of love for us in our lives. And then he continues, right? How ele having elevated the essential nature of love in verses 1 through 3, he leans into what agape really looks like. Remember, there's a, a dearth of it in Greek classical literature and the Septuagint. So he's trying to tease this out. What does it look like? This is what he writes. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, if you're a grammar person, you'll notice Paul begins with two adjectives, right? Patient and kind. And then he offers seven verbs to explain what does agape look like? Now, in a way, the first two adjectives kind of frame how one understands agape love. Right? Paul writes what? 
Agape is patient or long-suffering, right? It's kind. What Paul, the key here is that Paul is saying that agape is the kind of love that God displays. Romans 2.4, Paul describes both God's love as patient and kind, right? God is the one who patiently deals with our failings. Right, like I bet if we were all gathered in this room and I said to you, who here is perfect, right? None of us would raise our hand. Or if one person did, you know, and they were married, their spouse would be like, it's not true. You know, all of us are imperfect. I'm so grateful right, for God's patience with me as I heal and am transformed in his image. I think that's what's so like encouraging to me as I was singing that song about the blessing God being for me, right? Because I fail all the time and I feel like, you know, part of me, it just feels like I should be punished. But God, what does he do? He is patient and long-suffering with me in my failings. I'm also incredibly grateful that God is not just patient, right? He's also kind to me. He doesn't just patiently wait for me to get my act together. He kindly, mercifully helps me to grow, Right? I bet if we all gathered here this morning and I said to you, you know, raise your hand if you have experienced the kindness, the mercy of God. Right? All of us would raise our hands. Because right? we need the kindness and mercy of God. And right? he's saying God is patient and God is kind. And right? he's saying that we should be this way with one another. Next, right, having sort of framed our love and framed agape in terms of the character of God, Paul then offers seven verbs to tell us what love doesn't do. And here he really focuses on what the Corinthians are doing and how it contrasts with the agape love that he is trying to tease out and encourage them to live into. He begins with envy, verse 4. Right in chapter 3, 3, Paul writes to the Corinthians, there is jealousy and strife among you. The word jealous is the same word in Greek as envy. See, Paul knows there is envy in Corinth. It's wreaking havoc among them, right? They're competing positions for power and influence in the church, and Paul knows, guys, this is not love, right? So he tells them here in chapter 13, guys, love doesn't envy, Next, Paul reminds the Corinthians that love doesn't boast and isn't arrogant or puffed up either. Again, verse 4. And again, this stands in contrast to the behavior of the Corinthians who all want the spotlight. Right? They're so focused on their success and telling everyone about it that Paul has to remind them in chapter 1, verse 31, right? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, hey guys... This isn't about you. Right? The spotlight is about God. Remember the posture of Jesus, John 14. Everything he does is so that the Father might be glorified. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, your posture should be like that of Jesus. It's not about you. It's about God. Paul also told them in chapter 8 that they're puffed up on knowledge. Right? They love knowledge. They love digging into the, the, the philosophy of the day. They love feeling smart. And Paul's like, yeah, that's true, but 
You are puffed up on knowledge, is what he said to them, rather than built up in love. Right? They've created this culture where everyone wants to be the head or the eye, and no one wants to be the foot or the hand, right? Using Paul's body analogy of chapter 12. Knowledge is valued way too high. Right? And Paul invites them to realign their life, their heart, with Jesus and his self-giving love. Verse 5, he tells them that love isn't rude either. Now, in the ancient world, to be rude was kind of, kind of like us, right? To behave shamefully or disgracefully. Right? And again, this is something the Corinthians struggle with. If you go back to chapter 11, right? The, the rich Christians shame the poor, Paul says. At the, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because what would happen is the rich were more idle, right? They, they didn't have the same job constraints. So they would start their gathering, their communion gathering with a meal. But they would start eating before the poor had gotten off of work. And then they would finish everything before the poor folks had even had time to arrive. So they'd be stuffed and a little bit drunk. And then the poor would arrive and they would have no food to eat. And Paul said, that is just rude. If you recall, right, the Corinthians are also quite focused on their own freedoms, right? But love does not insist on its own way, right? That's exactly what the Corinthians are doing. Rather than caring for their brothers and sisters, right, in the church, they're just saying, I want to do what I can, right? I am free. I get to choose. It's all about me. And Paul spends nearly three chapters on food and idolatry. Now, I encourage you to go back to those chapters if you're sort of, if I don't get into enough detail here, but the simple thing is, right, the Corinthians want to just go to the temple and buy meat, even though it's leading their brothers and sisters back into worship of other gods. They are losing their faith, All right? But these Corinthians, they're so focused on their freedom that they bl they're blind to how their behavior is affecting others. So Paul reminds them, Right, that love is not self-seeking. It doesn't insist on its own way. Paul also writes that right, love isn't easily angered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And yet, what are the Christians, Corinthians doing? They're taking each other to court. They can't settle disputes. They cannot forgive each other. They can't move on. So instead, right, they drag each other to courts. And what happens in these courts? Right, the Corinthian courts are notorious for favoring the rich over the poor. They care more about right, social standing than truth. Jesus says we should love our enemies. But Corinthians don't. Right? They're divided and bitter and holding grudge and dragging each other into the Corinthian court system because they can't get along. When we get to chapter, verse 7, right, the Corinthian behavior just stands in such marked contrast to the love, the agape that Paul is describing. And as I was sort of thinking about them, it's easy to sort of focus on the Corinthians and be like, man, they got to get their act together. And then I did this little experiment, sort of a silly little experiment. I inserted my name for whenever it said love. So like, Tony is patient and kind. All right, I inserted it through all of verses four through seven. What I found was this. I had to do some major edits in order to it, for it to actually describe me. This is what I came up with. 
Tony is sometimes patient, though rarely in traffic or a line, and on occasion kind, if he doesn't feel rushed or have something really pressing he needs to do. Tony doesn't envy or boast, though if he's feeling a little insecure, he can do both. Tony's not arrogant or rude, but if he's tired, he gets rather unpleasant and grumpy. Tony doesn't insist on his own way, unless he has a deadline or feels stressed or he's been trapped inside by smoke and it's finally a clear day and he absolutely needs to get outside for a hike or he literally might have a panic attack. That's not a recent thing at all. Tony is not irritable or resentful unless he gets woken up a lot during the night by his kids and then he gets super irritable really quickly and is totally unfair and uncool, but it happens. Right, if I was to put my name, that's, that's, I think, true of me. I'm clearly a work in progress. What about you? Right, if you were to put your name into verses 4 through 6, what would be true of you? What edits would you need to make to align your true character with that passage? How does that passage challenge you, right? Because Paul is writing this to challenge the behavior of the Christians, Corinthians, so that they know how they need to grow and change and shift. How do you need to grow and change and shift reading this, right? This is not meant to be a sentimental card. This is meant to challenge our character, challenge our behaviors. And having written this, Paul continues... He focuses on the permanence of love, and this is what he writes in 8 through 13. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now hope, or faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Here again, Paul is trying to help the Corinthians see that they're putting way too much focus, way too much weight on less important things. So what he does is he tries to ask them to imagine what will it be like when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, right? When the perfect comes and the partial passes away, right? That's what that's referencing. He's trying to help them see that the gifts of the Spirit are given for a time, right? The season of the church. But tongues, knowledge, and prophecy will all shift when God comes to be with us in the fullness of the kingdom at Christ's return. Right? But love, love will be central to every aspect of life in the kingdom, right? Because love reflects God's character. As John writes, right? God is love. 
right, as we invest ourselves in becoming loving people, Jesus-shaped people, this is the most enduring investment that we can possibly make. Because who we become lasts forever. Tongues will cease, prophecy will cease, but what happens? Who we become, the loving people we become, lasts forever. To tease this out, Paul offers two analogies. The first is about this transition from childhood to adulthood. You see, the, Christian, the Corinthians think, man, I've reached the pinnacle of spirituality. You know, I got the knowledge, I got the gifts, I'm rocking it. They think they are adults. And Paul's trying to convince them that we, what they think is the ultimate, right? They think they have arrived. Paul's saying, no, 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 you guys, you're just at the beginning. Just as adulthood begins with childhood, so the way of the gifts operates now will change when Jesus arrives on the ground. They think they've arrived, and Paul's like, sorry guys, this is just the beginning of the journey. When Jesus arrives on the ground in the fullness of the kingdom, that's really when eternity with him will be sort of adulthood. This is the beginning, that is the end. The second analogy Paul uses is a mirror. Now, mirrors of the ancient world were made of brass, which we've already said was produced in Corinth. And when someone ordered a mirror, the artist would sort of offer the possibility of sort of etching a little bit in the mirror to personalize it according to the person who ordered it. So if you really liked Poseidon, Paul would be like, or the, the artist would be like, let me etch a little Poseidon there. And then when you woke up in the morning and you saw yourself in the mirror, you'd be standing among the gods. Right? You'd be standing with Poseidon next to you. Obviously, the person isn't really with the gods. They would see through a mirror dimly. Right? And Paul seems to be using this to frame the analogy. He's also playing off the experience of the Israelites and Moses. Right? The Israelites got to see God up on the mountain. Moses got to see God face to face. In the same way today, as we seek God, as we seek to enjoy His presence, it will not be as clear. It will be through a mirror dimly as when Jesus comes to earth and is with us. When He builds His kingdom on earth and we get to see Him without sin, without the brokenness, with all the trappings and all the stuff that distracts us, we get to see Him face to face. And this matters because the Corinthians think they've already arrived. And Paul's trying to help them see that their experience is a poor reflection of what is to come. Right, that's chapter 13. If I was to summarize it, right, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth that they might change their ways, or in biblical language, repent and live differently. Right? Align their lives with Jesus' self-giving love and his kingdom, right, which is shaped and defined and grounded and founded in love, in agape, right? In the same way the text challenges us to consider whether our lives are shaped by this love, by the agape of the kingdom of God, whether our lives look a little more like Jesus or a little more like someone else or something else, right? We're called to be different, and yet the Corinthians are just doing what everyone does. We are called to be different at Wellspring. The question I think Paul would say to us is, are you any different? 
right? We, we hear this at weddings and it's sort of cute. We see this on cards and we think it's cute. But in reality, 1 Corinthians 13 is a challenge laid at our feet saying, is your love like Jesus's? Jesus tells his disciples, right, this is his last dinner. He's in the upper room. He washes their feet. And he says to them, love each other as I have loved you. And as we come in this morning, I think that's the challenge, right? The goal is to have our lives mirror the self-giving love of Jesus. That's the goal. But it also is the process. How do we become loving people? By practicing the love of God in everyday life. By training. By learning how to love. You do not just snap your fingers and become loving. You practice. You look at your life honestly. And you say, God, is my life similar to yours? Is it mirroring yours? As we sort of shift towards closing and prayer, I just have three questions that I'm just going to invite us to just sort of be in a posture of prayer. First question is this, right? Is there any area of your life that is not motivated by love? Are you doing actions because you want people to see you? You want to be in the spotlight. You're doing it because you want people to see you a certain way be liked or admired, right, versus doing it because you love Jesus, doing it because you love that person, doing it so through your actions, God is in the spotlight, God is glorified, right, Jesus, that's what he says in John 14, he does everything, right, so that the Father is glorified, is there an area of your life, an area of your life that is not motivated by love, maybe it's your work, in your family, how you treat someone. Secondly, is there a person in your life that God is inviting you as you listen to this sermon to love better? In work, family, neighbor. And lastly, I wonder if there's an area of your character that God wants you to see clearly this morning. Paul says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. What about you? As you, as we listen to this text, is there an area of your life that God is saying, mm, I think there's a little work here to do. I just invite you wherever you are to open up your hands as I pray that the Spirit might speak. God, in this moment, we say you are patient and kind. God, you are patient with us as we sin and we fall and we fail. And God, we know that we are broken and in process and we are so grateful, Jesus, that you are patient with us. We are so grateful that you are so patient with us. God, thank you. And God, we are so grateful that you are kind to us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our failing. You are not just sitting there waiting like, I wonder if he'll get up. But God, you come to us and you grab our hand and you help us get up and along the way. God, you are patient and kind and we praise you for that. And God, as we sit here today, we just ask, God, shine, reveal to us the brokenness of our motivation, 
areas of our life where maybe our motivation is off. It's really just about us and it's not about you. God, bring conviction. And God, we ask that in this moment, you would bring a person's face to mind, someone in our life that we are not loving well. And you're like, okay, Tony, whoever, like, focus here. God, I just pray in this sacred moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring a face to mind for all of us, a actual person. Right, because it's easy, isn't it, God, to love the world? What about that one person? God, give us a face. And God, we ask that you would reveal our character to us. God, give us one verb to focus on. Right in four through six. God, give us one way that we can focus. Maybe it's our arrogance. Maybe it's our anger. God, whatever it is, God, reveal to us one area that we can focus on that we might be shaped into your image. God, that as we walk through life, we might image you in the world and that people might know you through us, through our love. God, you are good. We know that you are for us. We know that you are with us. God, would you transform us in the powerful and mighty, compassionate and gracious name of Jesus, we pray.